What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and it is time to begin our annual tradition here on the Glory UGA Podcast. Today's show is our very first Scouting the Enemy episode of the 2020 long summer. All of you longtime listeners, you know what these episodes are all about. We've done this for, I guess, what, five or six years now, but for some of our newer listeners... First, thanks for checking us out. Always appreciate that. But every summer, we try to put together the most detailed preview of each Power 5 team on our schedule. It's one of the more popular features that we do each and every year. We break down the stats, the schemes, the personnel, the whole nine yards, the whole deal. We go back. We watch the tape from last year. Guys, seriously, I literally DVR all the games of the teams that I know are going to be on our schedule the next year and then spend the late part of the spring, early part of the summer going back and pouring through the tape in order to give you guys the most accurate, most detailed picture I can of each of these teams. Actually kind of been a godsend through this whole pandemic time period where where I actually have a lot of extra time on my hands to spend watching all the tapes. So I've actually been able to put more into this offseason series than I have the past couple years. So I'm really excited about it. This is not like what you get on most national podcasts or radio shows where they spend about three to four minutes maybe discussing each team before moving on. And that's that's not their fault. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. We have to cover all the teams in the country. You just can't really spend much time on it. You can only cover them on like a surface level. But that's not what this is. This is a deep dive. And now to be sure, as with any preview, I, I can tell you all about what these teams were last year. But there's certainly a bit of projection when looking forward to 2020. Uh, Still, I I think the previous season can be really instructive about a future team if you know what to look for. So yeah, I'm excited about getting started on the Sky and the Enemy series today. I'm sorry uh, that I'm a day late getting this out. This is Friday morning. I'm recording this and getting this out to you guys. We've been posting on Tuesday and Thursday nights for the most part this summer. But uh, this week was a little different for me. I had to head out of town for a couple of days and just didn't have a chance to work on the show during those couple of days. So I had to put the finishing touches on it Thursday instead of being able to record it on Thursday. But I'm ready to roll now, so let's do it. Let's get to it. And uh, up first this season is the Virginia Cavaliers of the ACC in a game that, to be perfectly honest, I think a lot of you know this if you've been listening for a while. I've, I've said this before, but it's a game that really frankly has just never really excited me since it was first announced a couple of years ago. And look, I know playing them on Labor Day night is probably good for the program. Uh, It gives us an exclusive window to play in, and that is good. That's good for the program. Get some eyeballs on the team, although I'm not sure how many more eyeballs we need on our program. I, I think we get plenty of national attention as it is, but still, it doesn't hurt at the very least. But for fans, which are a big part of college football, we are, I really don't like it. I might I might be in the minority. I very well could be. But me personally, I just, I'm not really down with it. College football Saturdays are sacred to me. I mean, truly sacred. And to give one of the 12 we get each year up for a Monday night, a Monday night game in Atlanta. Look, you guys know I'm not a fan of games in Atlanta in the first place. To me, tailgating in Atlanta is just garbage in general. There's really... Not much of entertain. Like, there's not a real, a real entertainment center around where Mercedes-Benz Stadium is. There's a couple of places, but really nothing all that great. It's just not a good setup for fans, in my opinion. 
Plus, if it's on Monday night, I got to get up and go to work the next day. Yeah, sure, I know I could take a day off. But look, I use all my personal days for the Fridays before road trips. So I'm not wasting one on this game. And look, if we had to play on Labor Day night, I would be more okay with it if it was an actual big-time opponent, like maybe a Clemson, an Oklahoma, an Oregon, a Southern California, something like that. Like, like Alabama, again, for like the second time in the last three or four years, is playing USC to open the season while we're playing Virginia. That might make the whole thing worth it, playing a big team like that, but but not Virginia, man. Like, that, no, not Virginia. It just, it just annoys me, but... I'm just one small speck in time. I do not matter. And I'm sure a lot of you are excited about it. And I'm, I'm excited to get the season started. I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy that we're playing at least a Power 5 opponent and not, you know, Southeast Missouri. So uh, it's not the worst thing ever, but I'm just, I'm not excited about it. If we were going to play Virginia, let's let's do a home and home with them. I would love to go to Charlottesville. That'd be a great trip. But uh, I don't know. Atlanta just never really excites me in the first place. And then it's Labor Day night and it's Virginia. It is what it is. But Labor Day night it is. Anyway, I want to open by just giving some credit to head coach Bronco Mendenhall. And, and I want to do that by giving you guys a, a brief overview of the recent history of this Virginia program. I'm not going to go crazy in detail here because I know that's not what you came to listen to. But I think it is pretty instructive to kind of know where they were coming from and talking about how good of a coach I think Brondo Mendenhall is. And my guess is that most of you really aren't that familiar with the Virginia program other than the fact that they are an okay-ish ACC team. And and so to get, to understand why I have so much respect for their coaching staff, I do think you need to understand where this program has been over the past decade or so. Well, let's just be real. The Cavaliers were in a bad, bad place when Bronco Mendenhall first came over from BYU, which, to be perfectly frank with you, I thought was a really weird fit at first. I get why he wanted to get out of BYU, especially once they went independent like that. I, I get why he wanted to leave there. But to go to Virginia, all the way across the country, uh, you know, from a Mormon school, I thought, in, with a largely Mormon coaching staff, I thought it was an interesting fit. But it has played out really well for both parties. You know, traditionally... Virginia has had a, I guess what I would call a perfectly middling football program. In the long arc of their 116-year football history, they haven't ever been great. Like, they are rarely even very good. I mean, they only have one 10-win season in those 116 years. But from about the mid-ish 1980s to the mid-2000s, about a 20-year period there, they were a perfectly average program that every now and then cycled up to a nine-win season, you know, when they got the, well, all the right players. You know, like a Matt Schaub at quarterback or a Thomas Jones at running back, if you remember that name from the NFL, old Chicago Bear. Um, and, and in those 23 seasons between 1983 to 2005, Virginia only had two losing seasons. So there was certainly some stability there, more stability than maybe they've had throughout the rest of their their history. But at the same time, yeah, you only had two losing seasons in 23-ish years, but you only had one 10-win season in that same time frame. Again, never been really great, but have been at least respectable-ish for most of their history. But that relative stability started to crumble in the latter years of the Al Groh era, who was a good coach, but I mean, he closed out his tenure with three losing campaigns in four seasons. That's not going to get it done, even at a place like Virginia that doesn't really expect 
all that much success, like three losing seasons in four years, eh, that's going to get you fired just about anywhere. So that was the start of it. And then in comes Mike London, who, man, like, was just a complete disaster. God bless the guy, but disaster. Uh, they gave him six seasons, so you can't say they pulled the trigger early. They gave the guy six seasons, but he managed to finish above 500 only once in that span of time. He won only 11 games combined over his last three seasons on the job. And he actually ended up with four out of his six seasons, ending with four wins or fewer before he was let go. So they tried that experiment, but man, that was a complete failure. So that's the job that Bronco Mendenhall and staff walked into coming over from BYU back in 2016. And as you would imagine, when a program had fallen to those depths, it was tough sledding at first. I mean, they had two wins in their first year in 2016. But then they they upped that to six wins in a bowl game in year two. That's a pretty solid turnaround in just two short years. Then up to eight wins and strong contention for the ACC Coastal title. And then finally, last year, they made it over the hump with a nine-win season, an ACC Coastal Division title, and their first victory over in-state rival Virginia Tech in 15 seasons. They finally got that one done. It was literally their best season in 30 years that culminated in their first ever BCS slash New Year Six Bowl game. Uh, now they lost that game to Florida, the Orange Bowl, but hey, they got there. And it was actually a, a relatively competitive game for the most part. They ended up losing by a touchdown, but hey, they did what this Bronco Hall version of Virginia football does. They played hard, they played smart, and they made the more talented team earn it. That's kind of been the hallmark of this Virginia team under Bronco Mendenhall. And I, and I have a lot of respect for that. You know, it's one thing to be able to have all the talent, but if you're at Virginia, there's some limitations. You know, you obviously, you know, it's a high, high-achieving academic school. Now, the Virginia area ha- has started to get more players over the years, but it's still not near as many per capita as you're seeing, like, in the state of Florida, or Georgia, Texas, California, Ohio, places like that. And plus, you have Virginia Tech in state who is, has much more of a football tradition, and they're getting most of the top players that are staying in state. So it, it's a tough place to recruit from. So you're not really going to have all that much talent. So to play hard, play smart, make teams earn it, that's something I have a lot of respect for when you're coaching at Virginia. Now, to this point, this Virginia program has improved every single year under Bronco Mendenhall. I'm not sure that trend will continue this year, which we're going to get into throughout the course of this show, kind of explain why I, I feel that way. But he's done one heck of a job. I mean, really, he has. One heck of a job getting this Virginia program not only back on solid ground, but really into rarefied air for their program for, from a historical standpoint. Uh, as a staff, particularly offensively, like they do a really incredible job of coaching the talent they have and maximizing their players' skill set. I've always said I think that is such a huge part of coaching. Their players play hard, they play very hard, and they play smart. Uh, again, all of which are hallmarks of good coaching. And while they are rarely the more talented team when they line up out there on Saturdays, and as a result, like they, they lose their fair share of games. Like they're not going out there and winning, you know, and lo- winning 10, 11 games right now. They lose games. They lost five last year. But they rarely beat themselves with, with like blown coverages, blown assignments on the offensive line, bad run fits, all that kind of stuff. And, and the result is that over the past couple of years, with a few notable exceptions, 
they have found a way to stay in just about every game, even the ones they ended up losing. Like last year, for instance, they lost five games. They went 9-5, and five, lost, I guess, four games in the regular season, lost the bowl game to Florida in the Orange Bowl. But three of those losses were by one score. And the other two that weren't one-score losses were at Notre Dame and versus Clemson in the ACC title game. Understandable why they lost by a little more than one score in those two games. And actually, they, they were up on Notre Dame at the half before ultimately ending up losing by two touchdowns on the road. Um, but Bronco Mendenhall has just transformed them into a good, solid, hard-nosed football program, and I got a lot of respect for that guy and his staff. So yeah, with Mendenhall leading the charge, I fully expect for them to be prepared to give us their best game. I do. I expect that. Will that be enough? No, I don't think so, as evidenced by what we saw when, when Clemson beat them 62-17 to in the ACC title game last year. You know, the thing is, as hard and as smart and as disciplined as they play, at some point, the talent disparity, it's just too much to overcome, especially when that more talented team also has a great coaching staff in its own right. So, yeah, I, I don't expect this to be an overwhelmingly difficult game. I don't think that as good as again as as well as they are coached I don't think that's going to be enough to overcome the the overwhelming talent disparity between where we are right now and where this Virginia program is from a talent perspective but let's talk more about that let's move this conversation to the actual field of play where games are won and lost and and let's start with the Virginia offense and when talking about the Virginia offense over the past two seasons during this surge towards relevancy I would be remiss to start anywhere other than with quarterback Bryce Perkins. Perkins was their offense the past two seasons. And I know that's a popular thing to say from time to time. Like, oh, you know, uh, that team, they're not all that good. They just have like one guy, like he's their offense. But no, like Perkins truly, truly was their offense. I'm not saying they didn't have other good players. They have, they had a few good players around him, but make no mistake about it. Every single thing about that offense was built around and ran through him. It was absolutely the Bryce Perkins show over the past two years for the Cavaliers. I mean, the dude accounted for 79% of their offensive production last year. 79%! His 3,538 yards passing last year, uh, they broke a single-season Virginia record in only two years as a starter. He finished third in school history in passing yards and passing touchdowns. He holds the number two and number three positions in single-season passing touchdowns in Virginia history, and his 1,700 yards rushing over the past two seasons was the third most among FBS quarterbacks. The dude produced, man. Like He was absolutely a productive quarterback for them. But the thing is, and I know this is going to sound crazy, because the guy accounted for so much of their offense and took them to the ACC title game, led their their resurgence under Bronco Mendenhall. But man, like watching him play quarterback, like he wasn't a good quarterback in terms of, I guess, doing things quarterbacks traditionally are supposed to do. His throwing motion was just bewildering. Like I'm not even sure how he completed a pass with that motion. His deep ball accuracy was was tragic, man. Like I know people get frustrated with Jake Fromm, and I, I did at times as well. This is some some open guys on the field, but nothing like what you saw from Bryce Perkins. Uh, his decision making was highly questionable when passing. His fundamentals as a passer were were erratic. He just again wasn't good at doing things that quarterbacks have to traditionally do at that position. I, I mean. 
guys, they would have, they absolutely 100% would have beaten Florida despite the talent disparity in that game. They would have beaten Florida if he did not miss three wide open, I'm talking wide open touchdown passes. Like they would have not only beaten them, they would have beaten them comfortably. And I'm, I'm talking one pass where the tight end had his man beat by about five steps, by about five steps at least. And not only did Perkins miss him, he wasn't even in the same ballpark. It wasn't even in the vicinity. There was no chance for that ball to be completed. It was almost like the equivalent of a shortstop trying to throw a guy out at first base, but the ball ending up at home plate somehow. That's how bad of a miss that one was. And then he missed Hasis Dubois, who was the best receiver last year, another on another one and blew a read on an easy potential third touchdown. Like They should have won that game. Now, you could also say on the flip side, well, if it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have been in that game in the first place. Fair, fair point, but still, the fact remains: if he just makes some one of those easy throws, they could have they could have won that game. He just wasn't good when it came to having to consistently do those types of things. Yet he still ended up as one of the most productive quarterbacks in UVA history. So how does that happen? Like, what was going on there? There seems to be a disconnect. How does that end up happening? Well, I think first you have to recognize this: while he may have never been a great passer. I think that's certainly an understatement. He was a very, very good athlete. I think you have to start there when you're trying to explain how productive he was. But more importantly, in my opinion, the coaching staff built the offense around what he did best, which was clearly run the football. He couldn't throw the ball all that well, but he was a crafty, occasionally explosive, and deceptively powerful and tough runner. And offensive coordinator Robert Anai took those skills and built an offense around them, which is yet another reason why I have so much respect for that coaching staff. It wasn't that they, when I say they built the offense around his ability to run the ball, it wasn't that they didn't throw the ball. They did quite a lot, actually. In fact, they threw the ball about six more times a game than they ran it, which would seem to undercut my entire argument. But just hear me out here. But as much as they threw the ball, it was a very controlled passing game. It was all about the short to intermediate range pass, which Perkins was more adept at than a vertical passing attack. He completed about 64% of his passes, but only averaged 7.2 yards per attempt. And to put that into perspective for you, Jake Fromm last year averaged 7.5 yards per attempt. And we all know the issues we had with our vertical passing game and our offense in general. Like it was terrible. But even Jake Fromm last year averaged more yards per attempt than what Bryce Perkins did last year uh, on a team that went to the ACC title game. It was a lot of curl flat, bunch spot, high-low flood concepts with a bunch of play action, sprint, or boot action built into it to roll the pocket, get Perkins on the edge, put more pressure on defenses and pass coverage, give him more one-on-one looks. And they were only 97th nationally in explosive pass rate. They didn't throw the ball down the field. They just simply did not do that. They threw the ball a ton. Yeah, they did. 37 times a game, which was, believe it or not, more times than Clemson, more than Alabama, and about the exact same as LSU. But they were emphatically not throwing the ball down the field. That's not what Bryce Perkins excelled at. He was not that guy. Now, throw it short intermediate range, sure, he can do that. So yeah, they, they actually threw the ball more than they ran it. And they threw it more efficiently than they, than they ran it. But I still maintain that their offense was built around the quarterback run game. You know, whether it was quarterback power, quarterback follow, quarterback sweeps, 
quarterback draws, any kind of quarterback run game, that's what they did. And it wasn't a dynamic run game. It actually was not. They were only 117th nationally, 117th in rush offense last year and only averaged, man, a a very paltry 3.84 yards a rush. But even though they weren't efficient or altogether good running the football, it did what it was designed to do. It posed a threat. Featuring the quarterback run game, what it did is it consistently gave them a plus one situation in the box, which forced defenses to counter with heavy personnel. And that's the key. They forced defenses to attack them with heavy personnel to account for the run game. Otherwise, that quarterback run game would have been far more effective and far more efficient in terms of chewing up yards. And that was the key. That was the key to their passing game. No, statistically, they weren't near as effective running the ball as they were throwing it. It was 117th nationally versus 33rd nationally. But it was the threat of the run game that allowed their short passing game to flourish to the degree that it did. You know, if you go back and watch them, guys, on standard downs, defense is lined up almost exclusively in heavy personnel to counteract the threat of that quarterback run game, the, the Bryce Perkins threat. What that meant was that their slot wide receivers and tight ends, who also really fit that style of passing game, were being matched up with linebackers and safeties as opposed to DBs, like true like cornerbacks. Then once teams responded to being picked apart with a short passing game by subbing in an extra DB, then the Virginia run game all of a sudden did become much more effective. They did a really good job keeping teams off balance, but it was a very slow, methodical, completely possession-based offense. It was efficient, but not explosive in any way, shape, or form, as evidenced by the fact that they were 40th nationally in scoring offense, but only 81st nationally in total offense. What that tells you is that they weren't really chewing up yards at a high rate, but when they did get into scoring position, they were efficient, they were effective, and they were able to punch the ball in the end zone and get scores. But again, it was all centered and built around Bryce Perkins and the unique skill set that he brought to the table. But you know, Bryce Perkins, man, he's gone. No more. No more Perkins in Charlottesville. And so are all but one of his top wide receivers. Joe Reed and his 77 receptions, gone. Hasis Dubois, who I think was their best receiver. I mean, I don't think he was their best receiver last year. He's gone, along with his 1,000-plus yards receiving. Starting tight end Tanner Cowley, gone. So when so much of their offense was built around what those guys did well and their specific skill sets, it's really hard for me to try to tell you with any degree of certainty what their offense is going to look like this season. That, that's been a, a tough part of preparing for this particular show because I can tell you what they were last year like I just did, but man, like most of those guys are gone and the offense was built around those guys specifically. So what exactly are they going to look like this year? And I know that's what you guys want and that's what's relevant to this season. What will they do like, what will they look like this year? So I'm going to do my best and I honestly really don't expect all that much to change offensively for them in 2020 because their presumptive new starter at quarterback, Brennan Armstrong, is very much in the mold of Bryce Perkins. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I got to be honest here. I'm not going to try to sell you a bill of goods. There is essentially no tape of Armstrong taking anything resembling meaningful snaps at the college level. So I couldn't really go back and say, okay, let's watch this game. You know, he played a bunch of snaps in this game. No, that didn't happen. 
So what I did, I think the, the next best option for me was to go back and watch his senior tape on Huddle uh, from high school. And I know that's not exactly what he is now. I'm sure he's improved from there uh, with a couple years in, in that offense at the college level, getting college level coaching. But that's really all I had to work on in terms of at least giving me a, a, a frame of reference to operate from when it comes to like what skill set this guy brings to the table. So that combined with what his coaches say about him, kind of just going and doing some research there and reading what they had to say about him, it leads me to believe that his skill set is one that will lend itself to the style of offense that they ran with Perkins. You know, Some of the coaches on staff at Virginia have actually compared Armstrong to Taysom Hill uh, out of BYU, now with the Saints, obviously more popularly but originally out of, out of BYU. And those guys coached Hill at BYU. So they would know. And his tape, when like, so I actually read that somewhere, and then I went and watched the tape, and what I saw kind of supported that. It supports that at the very least, his game resembles that of Perkins and Taysom Hill. As a redshirt sophomore going into this season, he's, he's comparable in size to Perkins at 6'2", 220 pounds. Like Perkins, Armstrong is a much better runner than he is a passer. Uh, as a runner, like he, he's pretty dangerous. He, he's fast. He's nimble for his size. He runs with good power. He's a tough runner. He's not afraid to stick it up there between the tackles. We've got a good physical style to him. He displayed good vision on tape. and he, like, He's just a crafty runner. Again, a lot like Bryce Perkins was. As a passer, he's a lefty. But his release looks weird, even for a lefty. Again, a lot, I mean, Bryce Perkins was not a lefty, but had a really weird release. And I think you're going to see the same thing at an Armstrong this year. And, like, guys, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be mean here, but he's a train wreck. Now, or at least he was as a senior in high school with his passing footwork and fundamentals. Like, I'm not even sure you can call it fundamentals. It's, he doesn't even step into throws. At least his senior year of high school, he did not. Maybe they've worked on that at the college level, but the, all the tape that I saw from him in high school, like it was, I can't explain it. It's like he wasn't even stepping in throws. It was almost, almost like he was throwing every throw flat footed, which is just really weird. However, saying that, like, it's not like he doesn't do anything well. He, he does do some things well in the passing game. It's not all terrible. He's pretty effective throwing, throwing off platform. And with a guy that's a, a dual threat type quarterback, that's an important skill set to have. And on the move, uh, he throws well. Whether it's boot or sprint action or even him just scrambling around, he throws well on the move. Again, that's also important for a guy that, that makes so much of, of his game based around what he can do with his legs. Uh, and also, the vast majority of even his highlight tape passes, which are, I mean, guys, you, when you're making a highlight tape, you put the best plays you can find on that tape. But even on his highlight tape, which, again, are the best passes that they could find, all of them are like short and intermediate passes where he is largely using his running ability to make those plays happen. Like very rarely did I see him throw anywhere, any anything that can resemble a, a vertical pass. I, I'm talking maybe, maybe I saw a one or two throws that were 12 to 15 yards, but that's it. We're not talking about anything vertical down the field at all. Uh, and a lot, again, that's a lot like Bryce Perkins. So if you put all that together, I think there's a strong likelihood that their 2020 offense closely resembles that of 2018 and 2019. It might not be an exact carbon copy, but with Armstrong's skill set being so similar to that of Perkins and with the success that they had the past two seasons under this system, I think it's a safe bet at this point to say that it won't be radically different from what we saw the past two seasons. And I can't guarantee that, but... If you want a projection, that's kind of what I would project going into 2020. Now, 
As for the talent around Brennan Armstrong, if he does indeed end up winning that job, which I think he's the odds-on favorite right now, as I mentioned earlier in the show, they are losing a lot of their key playmakers off of last year's team. It's not just Perkins, guys. He's a, the biggest piece they're losing, but it's more than just him. According to ESPN's Bill Conley and his returning production chart, which I, which I always like to use each year, Virginia only returns 51% of their offensive production from last season. That's good for only 95th nationally. The most productive returning skill player is unquestionably senior wide receiver Terrell Janum. He caught 73 balls for 878 yards and three touchdowns last season. He had a huge game against Florida in the Orange Bowl. Had seven catches for 129 yards and a score. Also had a big game against Notre Dame, if I remember correctly. Uh, he's a smaller guy. He's only six foot, 190 pounds, which is really not odd for them. That's kind of in line with the type of wide receiver that fits their system. They seem to like the quick, sure-handed, strong route runners that that know how to get open and excel in that short to intermediate passing game. Uh, he's not going to go win a bunch of 50-50 balls, as you might expect with with that size, but. He can read defensive leverage and find holes in zones or use his quickness to beat linebackers and safety as a man coverage. He's a good player. But outside of that, it is extraordinarily slim pickings in terms of returning skill production for the Cavaliers. Wayne Talipapa, love that last name, love saying it, Talipapa, was their starter at tailback last season. He's back again this year. But none of their tailbacks were much of a factor last season. They actually had their top three tailbacks back this year. But again, they weren't really a factor last year. Talapapa was their leading rusher from that position. And he only had 473 yards on the ground for an extremely average 4.1 yards per carry. He's a stout little guy that runs hard, but in no way is he a dynamic runner. He's kind of just a guy, I guess is what I would say. He's just a guy. They do, however, return all five stars on the offensive line, so that's something that can't be discounted when you talk about their run game. That certainly is a, is a great starting point. But the skill players, I mean, really, it's Terrell Janna, and that's about it coming back. I mean, yeah, Talapapa's back, but he just wasn't much of a factor last year. Maybe he'll be more of a factor this year. I don't know, but there's been no evidence to suggest that's going to be the case to this point in his career. But yeah, that's the Virginia offense. There is a fair degree of uncertainty on that side of the ball for them, as one would imagine when you lose a guy that accounted for 79% of your offensive production. But I think it will end up looking very similar to the style they feature over the past two seasons. I do, with Bryce Perkins running running the show. I think it'll be a lot like that with Brennan Armstrong. In fact, I I honestly wouldn't be shocked when you think about this. They have five starters returning on the offensive line, another physical dual-threat quarterback that might possibly be even worse of a passer than Perkins was, and three returning tailbacks, along with losing most of your skill talent out wide, I wouldn't be shocked with with that combination if they actually leaned more on the run than they did last season. We'll see. We'll see. But I think that's a fair projection for this Virginia offense based off what we know right now. But all right, enough about the offense. Let's flip it over and talk about the Virginia defense a UVA defense that was, eh, let's say, decent last year. I think that's uh, the best way to say it. In, in fairness, they did deal with a lot of injuries with key starters like cornerback Bryce Hall. He went down, I think it was week six. It was definitely against Miami. I, when I was watching that game, I saw him go down. I was like, oh, that's not good for them. Uh, he went down. He was, their, he was their best player defensively. He absolutely was. I think it was a fourth-round draft pick this year, I want to say. 
And then Darius Bratton, who was going to be their other starter, starter at cornerback, he went down before the season even started. I think it was with an Achilles injury. So there were some major injuries, but they were just okay last year defensively. They were 62nd in scoring defense, 48th in total defense. Uh, they were 77th in yards per play allowed, 78th in points per play allowed. And, and with a lot of injuries in the secondary, and guys, when I say injuries, I mean a lot of injuries. They couldn't even play a dime defense in the Orange Bowl, for example, because they just simply did not have enough bodies at DB to do that. And as you would imagine, with all those injuries, they were much better against the run than they were against the pass. They were 40th nationally in rush defense, giving up 138 yards a game. They were 47th in the country in yards per rush allowed, only allowing 3.9 yards per rush. That's pretty solid right there. They were also 14th in negative play percentage, which... If you watch them play, that really aligns with the aggressive and attacking defense you see when you do watch them play. But they they gave up 278 yards a game through the air, which was 78th nationally. They were 96th in the country in yards per attempt. And man, this is the worst out of them all. They were 126 nationally in explosive pass plays surrendered. Guys, they're only 130 teams nationally. They gave up a lot of big plays in the passing game. Florida actually had a couple of them against them in the Orange Bowl. And it was, again, like I mentioned Bryce Hall, who I think was their best player before he went down in week six. Or I guess it was game six. But it was particularly bad after Hall went down. You know, the first six games when he was in there, they only gave up 184 yards a game, which was good for top 10 nationally. They were top 40 in yards per attempt, only giving up seven, seven yards an attempt flat. They were top 25 in quarterback rating, 119 quarterback rating allowed. But once Hall went down over the final eight games, they gave up 271 passing yards a game, which was 117th nationally, 9.4 yards per attempt, 129th nationally. Again, there's only 130 teams in the FBS, and they were 124th nationally in quarterback rating. And, I, and I, those stats come to you courtesy of Pick 6 Preview, which uh, does the absolute, undoubtedly, the best job anywhere of putting together a college football season preview. And I know Athlon and Phil Steele, they, they get a lot of the love out there. But Pick 6 Preview, you guys need to check them out. They, it is by far the most detailed breakdown of all these teams. And uh, when preparing for these shows, that's a great resource for me to have. Kind of has all the stats right there on hand. I used to have to go back and flip back and forth, go to cautionballstats.com and all these different sites, and it took me forever to compile those stats. So Pick 6 Previews has been an absolute lifesaver for me. So I strongly encourage you guys to go check them out. But anyway, again, they were terrible against the pass, but they had to play a lot of young guys in the secondary last year because of all those injuries. And while they did take their bumps a year ago, it stands to reason they're going to be much better for it this year with all the experience those young guys got last year. Yeah, they, they were bad last year, and they took some bumps, man. But you have to think they kind of went through the fire last year and hopefully come out the, oh, I guess hopefully for them, not for us, will come out the other side this season. And when looking at this defense, there are a couple of names to know. The first two names are two guys that, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're basically the same player, and that would be Noah Taylor and Charles Snowden. Those are the two best players on that Virginia defense coming into this season. And they both just happened to play the same hybrid outside linebacker position. Taylor, a rising junior, is 6'5", 215. Again, as an outside linebacker, 215, yikes. 
while Snowden, a rising senior, or a fourth year, as they call them at Virginia, they're, you know, they're special over there, uh, he's 6'7", 235. Both guys are tall, long, athletic, they can run, and they're very slim. Very, very slim, slight frames. But their athleticism and size, it makes them both very versatile players, which that's important because that allows Virginia to do some pretty interesting things with them defensively. In a lot of ways, to kind of put it uh, into Georgia terms, they use those two guys, Snowden and Taylor, a lot like we used Lorenzo Carter in 2017, if you, if you remember back a couple years ago. Sure, Lorenzo lined up in the box and, and he'd set the edge at times, but he was just as likely to drop into coverage or mirror the quarterback. And what guys like that allow you to do, what makes them so valuable, is that they help you become matchup proof. And I've talked to you guys before about how one of the major evolutions in offensive football over the past decade plus has been the hybridization of offensive skill players. Be it, I don't know, tight ends that can block and run routes like wide receivers, uh, quarterbacks that can throw or run with equal effectiveness, running backs that can run or catch the ball out of the backfield, you know, the, the Clyde Edwards-Alaires uh, those type of players, you know, to speak from last year's LSU team, those type of players have become all the rage because with their versatility, no matter what type of personnel a defense lines up in, you have an answer for them. If you play LSU and they are gashing you with a run game with Clyde Edwards Hilaire on the ground, and then you change to heavy personnel to take that away, well, they can keep the same offensive personnel on the field and get Edwards Alaire matched up on a bigger linebacker, and it's game over. That's exactly how LSU destroyed defenses last year. That's how they that's how they beat us. Is like they can they can do anything offensively out of the exact same personnel package. They never ever had to sub. Like they with with Clyde Edwards Alaire, they could run the ball with him, they could throw the ball to him. With Thaddeus Moss at line at, at tight end. Yeah, he could block. He wasn't the best block in the world, but he could. He was good enough at it. He could go out there and also line up out wide and run routes against linebackers and safeties and beat them all day long. That is the name of the game offensively right now. Get a running back that can run and catch the ball in the backfield. Get a tight end that can that can block and catch the ball. It can be a matchup problem for linebackers and safeties. Uh, in a quarterback position, let's say if Oklahoma is killing you with Jalen with a Jalen Hurts quarterback run game. What do you do? Well, you have to. You have to respond defensively with heavy run-stopping personnel. Otherwise, they'll gash you. But when once you do that, Jalen Hurts beats you with his arm. It wasn't a great passer, but a good enough passer to beat you with his arm once you go with heavy personnel. So hybrid offensive skill players, what they do is they give a matchup advantage to the offense no matter what a defense does. It, it kind of puts a defense in a situation where they can't be right. And it's extraordinarily hard to defend with traditional personnel. So how do defenses fight back? What do they do? Well, they fight back with hybrid players of their own. Guys like Isaiah Simmons at Clemson. Uh, Lorenzo Carter a couple years ago here at Georgia. A potential guy like Adam Anderson, if he can put on a little bit more weight. And that's one of the reasons that I'm really high. I mentioned this before over the, the summer. That's one of the reasons I'm really high on a guy like James Williams out of high school this year. I really, really want him. He's very high on my wish list because I think he can be one of those type guys. There's a lot of a lot of negativity around him with some people saying, well, he, he might be too big to be a DB, to be a safety. He might not be big enough to be a linebacker. I'm like, it doesn't matter. That guy has got positional versatility, and that is so valuable in this day and age when you're trying to defend modern offenses that throw out hybrid player after hybrid player. And Snowden and Taylor 
are those kind of guys. Heck, Taylor played the, the nickel position in the Orange Bowl almost exclusively due to all the injuries they had in the secondary. Like, he's that athletic. And those two guys also allow Bronco Mendenhall and defensive coordinator Nick Howell to get very creative in their pressure packages, which is a big reason why they were top 15 nationally in negative play percentage last season. And I don't expect that to change this year. I think we're going to see a lot of the same stuff from them coming into 2020. But as good as Snowden and Taylor are, and as valuable as their versatility can be, and it is, the fact is, they are both very light in the bridges to be playing on the line of scrimmage. And they do oftentimes, when they're asked to play on the line like that and to set the edge, they will get eaten up. They'll get eaten up when trying to do that. Uh, Lorenzo Carter, again, for example, was 245 to about 250 his senior season. And even he had issues setting the edge on occasion. And Snowden is also 6'7", guys. He's 6'7". I know that, might, that might sound great in theory, but... At some point, that kind of height becomes counterproductive. It, it makes it really easy for offensive linemen to get under his pads and gain leverage on him. And honestly, as bad as our offense was last year, if we would have played them, I think we might have put about 40 on them because we would have just run all over them. I really believe that. I mean, as bad as Florida's ground game was last year, Florida was 107th nationally running the football last year. But even Florida put up 244 yards on the ground against Virginia. Look, we don't, and, and the crazy thing is, like, that's actually what Virginia was better at last year. They're much better against the run than they were in the past, but I still don't think they were really great against the run. And I think their numbers might be inflated a bit just due to the fact they played in the worst division in probably college football last year, the ACC Coastal. Uh, so I, I really don't think they were all that great against the run. And when teams try to attack the edge, Snowden and Taylor really had a tough time maintaining that edge position. So like we don't know what our offense will look like in 2020, uh, nor do we know exactly what our offensive, our offensive lines will look like. But we do know that whoever ends up winning those spots on the O-line will be big, physical, highly talented guys. We've recruited so well at that position for years now. And I have to believe whoever it is that wins those jobs, that we're going to be able to test their ability to hold up on the edges and have some success doing so. So yeah, there's a lot to be excited about on the Virginia side with those two players. They allow them to do a lot of things defensively, but there is a kryptonite. And I think running the ball on the edges is that kryptonite. The other name to know on this Virginia defense coming into the 2020 season is linebacker Zane Zandier. He not like I'm not as high on him as I am Snowden and Taylor. He gets a lot of attention when talking about the Virginia defense. I want to mention him here. But honestly, I'm just really not overly impressed with him. Sure, he's, he's a hard-nosed, throwback-type inside linebacker that, that plays hard. He'll strike you. you know, and, I have, and, I, and I have a soft spot for players like that. I do. But I'm, again, talking about defending modern offenses, like he's not particularly athletic. And pouring through the tape last season, he sure missed a lot of tackles, man. Missed a lot of tackles, fell off a lot of tackles. Now, he made plenty of plays, too. Like He wasn't like complete garbage. He's a good player. I just don't happen to think he's anything special. Um, and I absolutely do not think he would be in our four-hour four-man inside linebacker rotation if he was on our team. I just don't. I just don't. It doesn't mean he's not a good player. I just don't think he's an elite caliber type guy. He's a good, solid piece in the middle there, good leader, that kind of thing. But I just... You know, when you read other previews, you see them always talk about and mention Zandir, and I just, I don't see it. I, and I tried to see it when I watched the tape, but I don't really see it all that much for him. Solid player, just nothing 
all that spectacular. But uh, all right, guys, that's Virginia. This is a good, solid, well-coached team that will rarely be the more talented team on the field, but it's also equally rare that they beat themselves. Um, as I detailed, there is a degree of uncertainty offensively in terms of what they're going to be and what the system will look like with so much key production departing from the last two seasons. But with a skill set of likely quarterback starter Brent Armstrong being so very similar to that of Bryce Perkins, combined with their success over the past two years in this offensive system, I think it's very reasonable to project that their offense is going to look and operate a lot like it has the past couple of years. Defensively, there are a lot more known quantities. They were bad in the secondary last year, but that should pay dividends for them this year with all those young guys and experience. They have a couple of hybrid pieces that allow them some versatility on defense. They play an aggressive style of D. They put an emphasis on creating negative plays. And they have, they have a good leader in the middle of the defense in Zane Zandier. Maybe not an elite player linebacker, but kind of a glue guy. But guys, make no mistake about it. Our offense, even with the issues that we had last year, is far more talented than that Virginia defense. They're going to make us earn it in this game. But if we execute and play anywhere close to the level I believe we are capable of, they really should not pose too much of an obstacle for us on Labor Day night. But uh, all right, guys, that does it for me here today on the Glory UGA podcast. Really hope you guys enjoyed this episode and got something out of it. Hopefully now you feel like you know a lot more about this Virginia team and who we're going to be facing week one. But uh, we'll be back doing this each week the rest of the summer. We are going to have the Alabama Scout the Enemy series episode up next week. Curse will actually be back on that episode, so look forward to that. We're also going to have our mailbag, our June mailbag episode that will be running first thing next week. So if you have any questions, anything you want to know about, anything you want us to discuss, hit us up on Twitter. It's at Glory underscore UGA. You can also email us those questions at podcast at gmail.com. So Hit us up, guys, with whatever is on your mind. Thanks for listening. I had a lot of fun doing this show. Actually, I have a lot of fun putting together these shows. It's a lot of work. It really is. It's it's quite the task, but it's still like the whole process of breaking down opponents and that kind of deal and go back and watch them games. It's a lot of fun for me to do that, so I enjoyed it. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.